we hear about globalization all the time and increasingly so. And this, this idea that it's this widespread, all-encompassing force that has you know, taken over our lives over the last 30, 40 years. And some people love it and some people hate it. And, and there's lots of talk about it. But when I looked into the economic data, we haven't seen as much globalization as one might think. Welcome to The Hale Report. My name is Lyricuse Hale, and I'm Editor-in-Chief of EconView, and your host today, Wednesday, November 9th, 2022. EconView, based in Chicago, is a home for independent voices and expert analysis of critical global economic issues. If you'd like to subscribe to our monthly newsletter, as well as listen to our podcast, please visit our website, and if you can, support us on Substack. You can also find past podcasts on our website, econview.com, and on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all the usual places. My guest today for our 39th episode is Shannon O'Neill, speaking to us from New York City. Shannon, welcome to the Hale Report. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Have we run into get to each other at the CFR? We must have somehow in the past. At some point, given I've been <laughs> here for 15 years, I'm sure we have at some point. But the, the last few years have been a little bit uh, hazy given, given the pandemic. Hazy is the word to describe it. So anyway, next time I get to New York, I hope we can meet in person. Let me tell you um, a bit about our guest. Shannon K. O'Neill is the Vice President, Deputy Director of Studies and Senior Fellow for Latin America Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations, which we've just been talking about. She's an expert on global trade, supply chains, Mexico, Latin America, and democracy. She's the author of The Globalization Myth, Why Regions Matter, Yale University Press, uh, just in October of this year. She writes about three main global manufacturing and supply chain hubs and what they mean for U.S. economic competitiveness. She's a columnist for Bloomberg and a frequent guest on national broadcast news and radio programs. She's lived and worked in Mexico and Argentina. She was a Fulbright scholar before turning to policy. She also worked in the private sector as an equity analyst. She holds a BA and MA in international relations from Yale and a PhD in government from Harvard. Her new book on the globalization myth has received a lot of attention. Ian Bremmer calls it an important corrective to a broken public policy debate. So before we begin, Shannon, you know, I always begin my podcast by asking my guests how they became interested in the subjects that became their life's work. Would you mind sharing your journey with us today? Sure, I'd be happy to. Uh, so I have been involved now uh, in international affairs for the last 25 plus years in terms of my career. And I have to say, I grew up in Akron, Ohio, so in the Midwest. And I had two great uh, figures in my life, my grandmother, as well as a great aunt, both of them were widows, and they were big international travelers. So I think that's how I initially got the bug, was, was watching them. And then as my career developed, I was interested in international things. I got lucky, as you, as you read in my bio, I got to live in Mexico. I was working for an investment bank there right after uh, university. And so that also brought in the economic side, really interested in how economics affects the, the way societies work, the way the way countries work. And that spurred my interest. And since then, I have been moving back and forth between private sector, academia, and policy, looking into those issues in, in countries around the world. Uh, and that is, in many ways, I've done it a lot in Latin America, but 
these last five years, starting before the pandemic and through it, I've been looking more globally. And that's what led to this book, The Globalization Myth. Well, I think now that I'm a grandmother myself, I have to say, I think grandmothers are incredibly important <laughs> and were to me as well. So it's it's really wonderful to hear how that interest was sparked. And we'll get back to Akron in a little bit, too, because you talk about it in your book. Um, what you are saying is that the next stage of globalization is regionalization. But would it be more accurate to say that what we thought was globalization was all along actually regionalization. It is when I, we hear about globalization all the time and increasingly so, and this, this idea that it's this widespread, all-encompassing force that has, you know, taken over our lives over the last 30, 40 years. And some people love it and some people hate it. And, and there's lots of talk about it. But when I looked into the economic data, we haven't seen as much globalization as one might think. Uh, and there are really only about two dozen countries that have transformed their economies over the last 30, 40 years with quote unquote globalization, where you've seen trade you know, double as a percentage of, of their GDP. And in dozens more, trade has stagnated as a sort of as a part of the, their economies, or it's even decreased. So you've actually seen countries deglobalize over the last 40 years rather than globalize. So as I looked in the data, I started looking at this, this puzzle given the way we think about it and then the actual data. The other thing I found was that there has been an increase in trade. There has been an increase in international money flows, but they don't go just anywhere. And they don't often go to the other side of the world. Sometimes they do. And we see companies that source from you know, 58 different countries and, and, and have a global footprint, but thousands of other companies alongside, when they went abroad, just went next door, really. They looked at countries that were nearby. And there's, there's lots of reasons for this. Um, but one of the main reasons is, it's actually more profitable. And McKinsey's done studies and they actually call it the globalization penalty, that if you go international, you'll become more profitable. But if you go too far away, that profitability starts to decline, your margins start to decline. So there is a challenge here. And so to me, we're starting to talk about regionalism today and we can talk about why you know globalization that we've known for 40 years is changing today. Um, but what I, I develop in the book and what I find in the data is that We've always been more regional than global uh, around the world. So it's really more of a continuum. What we thought was globalization is really ac more accurately described as regionalism. But what are the regions that you see, the three major regions? Uh, can you describe them? So we've seen three big economic and manufacturing hubs developed over the last 40 years. And one is in Europe. So the European Union and, and some of the countries nearby, another is Asia, centered today around China, but at the beginning it was centered around Japan and, and the like, and then North America. Uh, so the US with Mexico and Canada as its neighbors. And, and what I found is that these are the three regions that have grown. The rest of the world has been left on the margins. And I think that in some way explains low growth in places like Latin America or Africa uh, or South Asia is that they weren't involved in the creation of these international supply chains and this regionalization. Um, but we've also saw in the data and in the interviews that I did uh, that Asia and Europe have integrated or regionalized much more than North America. And I would argue that's to their economic strength and commercial advantage and somewhat to the U.S. and North America's detriment. Uh, and just to give you a couple numbers there to, to underlie this, so trade between European countries is almost two thirds. So 65, 66% of trade goes within Europe. Money flows are somewhat similar as well. 
Asia, we've seen a huge increase in intra-regional Asian trade. So in 1980, it was closer to 30%. Today, it's over 60%. So much of it, the majority goes within Asia. And then in North America, it's about 40%. So it's much higher than the rest of the world, which is only 15% goes with their neighbors if you look at Latin America or Africa. Uh, but it's much lower than these other two hubs. Um, so you see real differences. And that, to me... The reason you see that is supply chains. You know, we talk about global supply chains, but they too are very regional. In fact, even more regional, I would say. And Asia and Europe have created much deeper connections or wider connections in these in supply chains than I think North America has. That's what I wanted to ask you as an expert in this particular geography too. Is there a kind of sub hub in North America, the U.S. and Canada, and then Mexico as a separate Entity. Why hasn't hasn't integration with Mexico um, uh, gone the way that integration in Europe or Asia has, for example? What's what's the issue there? Do you think? So these hubs came about, and I look back at the histories over these 40, 50 years, and these hubs came about in different ways. And you know, to characterize it, Europe was a very top-down approach. It was full of diplomats. And there was the Treaty of Rome and the Treaty of Lisbon and the Treaty of Maastricht and the Treaty of Nice and named lots of other cities in Europe. And there were treaties there. And so it was really diplomats coming together and, and taking down trade barriers, stitching the economies together letting the movement of people go back and forth, creating a currency that most of them all share. It was creating this from top-down treaties. Mm -hmm. Asia was very different. It was very bottom-up. And it was really led by CEOs. Uh, so you have- By business. You know, by yeah. business, exactly. Mm -hmm. So Japanese companies found very quickly in the 1950s and 60s that they had run out of workers. So they started outsourcing to, at the time, very poor countries like South Korea and Taiwan. Uh, and so sending- factories, sending technological know-how, technological transfer, sending managerial know-how and expertise. And then those economies began to grow and prosper. And then they began outsourcing. So they went to, you know, Malaysia and to Vietnam and, and to China. Uh, so you sort of see this movement led by business, helped by governments and by foreign direct investment and by, by development assistance to build ports and roads to connect the economies, but, but not led by free trade agreements, not led by by treaties or, or institutions the way Europe was. And then I would say North America ended up somewhere in the middle, like a Goldilocks middle, but not in a good way here. Okay. So it didn't have the structures of a Europe where there were court systems and development banks and, and legislatures combining the three countries and building those, those ties or getting rid of regulations. And it did have some, but not the extent of the business impetus, the business stimulus in terms of of outsourcing and combining the economies together in these supply chains. We see it in some particular sectors and industries. So automotive would be a big one where we do see regional supply chains. Aerospace is another where you see some of this. Agricultural, some you know food products and the like, we see it, but not as extensive as you see in Asia. And that is in part how Asia rose from being 25% of, of global goods production to now 50%. Right. So this tripartite world, even within that world, you have cross-fertilization. You were talking about the automotive industry and Japan, and now in Latin America, in, in, the, in our backyard, China has a huge influence right now in terms of business. And I think that is also driven by business, not really by um, the government. How does that, those cross currents, how do you, how does that affect it? Are those good to have those cross currents or are they destructive to the unity 
of those trading blocks. So I'd say there is a double-edged sword here. And Latin America is a great example of this, uh, where you see China has come in. It's one of the biggest trading partners for many countries, particularly in South America, also a big source of, of loans and investment and the like. And it has, on the one side, brought prosperity to parts of Latin America. China is the biggest buyer of all the commodities that you know Brazil and Chile and Argentina and Peru and others are producing. And so it's brought a lot of money into government coffers that allow them to create social programs and the like. But what it's also done is uh, really compete with Latin America's manufacturing sectors. And in fact, Latin America is one of the regions in the world that suffers most from what economists call premature deindustrialization. So losing your manufacturing sector before you become a wealthy society. Uh, and a big part of that, I would argue, is the competition from China. And one of the challenges, especially South America has, Mexico is left out of this because they are part of North America, but South America has is they have not regionalized. They don't trade very much at all with each other. They trade with other countries far, far away. And what that has done is really left them on the edge of global supply chains. So they ship out raw materials, the commodities to countries far away, and then they bring back finished goods, finished products. But they don't get those middle steps where you get economies of scale, where you get specialization, where you get uh, you know, learning and knowledge and you actually climb the value added chain where you have more engineers and technicians and the like as part of your workforce. You're left on the edges and that I think is costly for society. So China, I think for, especially for South America has been this double-edged sword, helping them in many ways and providing the investment that they need that the US or others weren't, weren't coming through with. But but also influencing their economies to leave them in places that make it hard for them to move from middle-income country to, to a wealthier country and provide for more of their people. You know, as I was reading your book, I was thinking about this, your idea of regionalism. And I wonder, because of geopolitics, is, is it really the case that um, we're entering into a bipolar world because of what the competition with China and that that is the key force driving economic activity going forward. Um, is that really the most important? In other words, are the regions you are describing, are they really physical regions? Or are they metaphysical regions? Yeah, and I, I will uh, we also have a world that's based on, you know, democracies versus autocracies. Will this be what really drives uh, trade in the future more than anything else, even though they're the efficiencies that you describe, but something seems to be overriding common sense. So I think it'll be a bit of both. I think there'll be two parallel lines. There will be this turn to regionalism, which I do think will continue. And you know, many nations are moving forward to make it easier to trade with their neighbors. China has reached out and signed free trade agreements with many of its neighbors in Asia to try to you know, create that those connections and lower the barriers to trade between between you know over a dozen Asian nations. Um, they've been investing in the Belt and Road, and so building the infrastructure. Also, in, that's it's a global project, but most of the money has been in Asia too. So it is regional in its base in many ways. So you have some of that. You have some of that happening in Europe and in, in doubling down on the connections within Europe. So I think there are these forces that will continue to be regional. Um, but we will also see a, a dividing up uh, along um, these geopolitical hostilities, and particularly those between the U.S. and China. You know, Russia also is is right. is, is mm -hmm. dividing up the world. And those, I think, do two things. One is the 
while geography will matter, so will, you know, allies, whether it's divided up by type of government or where you fall on this, on this geopolitical divide, that's one part. Um, the other thing you're seeing is a fluidity to business operations and supply chains that you really haven't seen for, for a couple of decades, in part because while it has been profitable to produce in China for the last you know, 20, 30 years, there were already other forces that were changing some of the business calculations and the profitability to producing in China for various reasons, whether it's you know, automation or changing demographics or climate change issues and the like. But the geopolitics really are bringing this issue to every boardroom that has you know, operations in these countries. Can I continue to produce there? Should I continue to produce there? What part of my production should be there? Um, you know, who are my consumers and the like? So, this is creating fluidity. And that too will lead to some parts of business, some either some companies or some capacity or the like to move to other places than China. Uh, and we will see what happens. Some of that will go more regionally. They'll say, you know, we're not going to be in China, but we're going to go to Vietnam or Malaysia because we want to be part of, you know, a particular region there. The, you know, we have the free trade agreements like RCEP, the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, which is a, which is an Asian free trade agreement. We want to be within the rules of that because it lets us, you know, move things tariff-free across these various countries. So we'll still be in Asia. But other people will say, you know what, we're going to look all over the world and we would rather be tied to the U.S. market. And where can we get into the U.S. market without tariffs, with fewer barriers and the like? Well, Mexico and Canada are good places. A number of other Latin American countries have free trade agreements with the United States. Um, the United States is not really a free trader. We don't have a lot of free trade agreements around the world, but most of the ones we have are in the Western Hemisphere. So I do think we'll see some movement, uh, geographic movement, for those who are trying to access um, the U.S. market, especially in industries where, that are at the center of these geopolitical divides. So those with, right. with certain technologies. Yeah, back to your mention of Vietnam, you write about Vietnam and also that the Chinese influence there. So if companies are trying to avoid doing business in China by doing business in Vietnam, which is incidentally another communist country, you know, <laughs> that people tend to forget that, that actually the factories might be owned by Chinese or uh, companies or the investors might be Chinese. So this regionalism gives them a way to escape maybe some other geopolitical tensions. It does. And I think this is going to be the, the tension we will see going forward is, is, you know, do we, where do you produce? And there's a physical geography there. We don't want to, certain things we won't allow to be made in China. We'll have export controls or we won't want to buy it from China, but it'd be okay if it's the same company based in, in Vietnam. And then others, we will actually care about the nature of the company. And we've seen that, you know, Europe just this last week, we saw the German government decide that a Chinese subsidiary could not buy a, a semiconductor company that was a German one precisely for sort of national security issues and, and competitiveness reasons. So I think this is, all the governments around the world are still trying to figure out where these divides are. I think they're going to be fluid and moving. Um, but as I look at the politics of this, I don't see us going back to a more open world. I think we will continue down this path for the years to come uh, and dividing up between the United States, particularly and in, in China. And the at the same time that was going on in Germany, Chancellor Olaf Scholz was on a trip with the, the, the CEOs of the 12 largest companies in Germany. Exactly. So. so trying to balance both <laughs> sides of this, we'll take the CEOs and we'll allow them to invest in the port of Hamburg, which they allowed the Chinese to buy a percentage, but you can't move into our semiconductor industry. So, you know, where these lines are mm -hmm. going to be drawn is, is going to be an interesting part of the decade that comes. It's, there's a lot of cross hatching that's going yeah. on that's creating this, the way I visualize it, this, 
And, you know, another issue, too, of course, is climate change and the electrification of the global economy and what that means for commodities. How does that overhang influence uh, regionalism? This is a, a real concern um, or a real issue here. And, mm -hmm. and we have sort of cross-cutting uh, trends here in that, you know, the commodity super cycle of the early 2000s when China was building all of its cities and wanted needed steel and iron and cement and everything else, that seems to be gone, um, both because those cities have been built and, and China's de demographics are changing and, and they have a lot of real estate for sale. So that doesn't look to be the, the future. Um, so some of the commodity super cycle has faded, though it's a different set of commodities. It's green commodities that look to be in high demand. And the issue here, I think, where some of it will be global because some of these resources are only uh, present in particular parts of the world. So if you want to get them, you need to get them from particular places. But this too is part of these geopolitical divides is that you, many countries want, they see as part of their national security access to critical minerals, critical inputs, like those kinds of commodities that go into green technologies. So lithium and, lithium and cobalt mm -hmm. and graphite and manganese and all kinds of things that go into your battery or go into your solar panel or go into the other, you know, aspects, um, the technologies that, that people are worried about. So I do think we will see a little bit of a divide up around the world as to can you source from places that you feel are more geopolitically friendly to you that you're allied with versus places where um, you're worried about your access down the road. The real challenge here for, I would say here for the United States, for North America and for Europe is many of these uh, minerals are either mined or particularly processed in China today. And so the idea of, of removing that from your supply chains and particularly your high technology green supply chains is gonna be a longer process and a really expensive one because few of your allies or your in, within your region actually make these things today. Right. So those costs will go up at the same time. Yeah. So it runs counter to uh, the goals that people have, you know, at COP27 or whatever. Yeah, exactly. it runs counter and to it. One one other aspect of this too, and, and as, as I was doing the research for this book is today of the things that move around the world, the, the trade that happens around the world, the vast majority of it is not the finished product. It's not the solar panel or the wind turbine or the car or, or the other finished good. It is the pieces and parts that go into those things. And so 75% of what goes around the world that crosses borders is what economists call intermediate goods. So the, the parts that go into the final good. And that too is minerals and that's processed minerals and the like. But what you see with those intermediate goods is they tend to be even more regional in their movement across borders than the final goods. So, you know, an example of this is you know, your iPhone comes from, we say it comes from China, but it really comes from Asia. Everything is made in Asia, all the parts are put together in Asia. And then it's sold to consumers around the world. And that's true. But most of the trade happens between the countries who are bringing in the screen and the microphone and, mm -hmm. and, the, and the back part and the screw and the semiconductors and all of that that are coming around from Asia. And here with commodities, it's the same thing. It's great to make a solar panel. We can make them in the United States. But if all the pieces and parts and the mining of the and the processing of the minerals that go into it are in one place, it's much more likely that it will stay regional. And at this moment, Asia has an advantage. If you'd like to become a supporter of EconView and the Hale Report, please visit our website and become a subscriber. For me, it's really interesting to compare um, China's 
internationalization with Japan's. And in your book, you write in great detail about Japan's automotive industry and industrial policy. And I really enjoyed that personally because I worked with a lot of the Japanese companies here in the Midwest when they first came over, since I was the gaijin who spoke Japanese at the time. But my question is, does the United States as well, in light of all of these issues and the importance of geopolitics, need an industrial policy? And what do you think um, about what's been coming out of the White House so far on that? Do you think that's, are we headed in the right direction? So I see a reason for industrial policy in particular sectors. I personally think the U.S. is a place of entrepreneurship and innovation and lots of ideas and and people willing to take risks and kinds of things that you don't see in, in many other cultures. And I think those are an advantage to us. So you don't need uh, as much of a government force in, in many sectors. But there are particular places and particular industries where I think it does, you do need an industrial policy. You need it for a few reasons. You need it, one, because it is important for national security reasons. It is important to have fundamental technologies and access to particular kinds of inputs like semiconductors uh, or medical equipment and the like to have them either at home or in places that you trust that you can get access to them. So that's part of it. The other is like it or not, other countries are doing it. Uh, and what we have found in some of our industries, um, and I would say semiconductors is one of these, is that when other countries are subsidizing the industries by such great amounts, and there, you know, the studies I've seen is, you know, Taiwan or others are subsidizing the cost of a semiconductor, you know, fabrication or fab um, by 30, 40%, you just can't be competitive in the United States. It's not that if, if like were like and everybody had the same price level, then you could produce in the United States because it's not a low cost, low wage industry. But because governments are subsidizing it, since they have industrial policy in some ways to keep some of those businesses here and the technologies that they inspire here, you need to subsidize as well. So I think there are national security reasons in a few areas that are important. And then I think there are reasons to have certain technologies and things here. But overall, I would say... I think the United States can compete in in many of these places. And many of the changes we've seen in the economy, uh, in the global economy over the last 10 plus years, whether it's the rise of automation and AI and quantum computing and and software and things into manufacturing and into services, um, some of the reasons that U.S. workers and, and U.S. communities had problems, sort of low wages and the like, those are going to be less important going forward. So I think there's an advantage for the U.S. as we look, or a bright spot optimism as mm-hmm. we look through the next 10 years on, on a whole bunch of areas that aren't so so uh, important for national security, right? Just regular, regular kinds of products. So U.S. entrepreneurship and then also resilience. I, I enjoyed reading about uh, Cummins Engine, um, a company here in our backyard and the trans, their you know, evolution over time to meet the new market demands. Um, uh, why were they able to do that? And why didn't that happen in your hometown of Akron in the tire industry? Why did they miss the boat, but Cummins Engine, what, what made the difference in terms of resilience? Yeah, I think these are two great stories and, and exemplify really the, the challenge. And so Akron, Ohio was the home of tires. You know, they made most of the tires in the world at one point in the 1950s and 60s. And then in the 70s and 80s, they fell on very hard times. Um, they were facing competition from Japanese uh, tire makers and, and auto companies, from Europeans, from Michelin, from France and Continental, from Germany. And then by 1982, the last tire came off an assembly line in, in Akron, Ohio, and that was the end of it. 
uh, and, and the companies were sold off to other international companies, those that had been, been created there. And what I would argue is this is often seen as the classic story of the victim of globalization, right? The Akron fell because of globalization. And what I would argue is that it was actually limited regionalization, that they were facing Japanese-made tires, but that were using supply chains all over Asia. They were facing you know, French and German, but were using the larger market that they had in, in Europe and in the European community at the time. And so because of that, they had economies of scale, they had specialization, they had built-in clients, they had larger market access. And so they were more competitive than tire companies in Akron, Ohio, who had no friends. NAFTA was a decade away and, and, and yet, to, yet to allow them to get that economies of scale and, and, and affordability and high quality that, that they were facing with their competitors. And so that's the down story, you know, and they, they tr struggled and then in the 1980s finally lost the industry. Cummins Engines is, is, you know, in Indiana, it's not that far away. It's, it's no. you know, four or five hours away driving. Um, and they had a different story. In the 70s and 80s, they too were on the ropes. They were struggling and Japanese engines were beating them out. And so were some European ones. They were losing orders and, and, and almost went under. Um, but in the, they held on to the 1990s and then NAFTA came. And NAFTA in many ways saved Cummins Engines. And it did it through these ways. Cummins moved some production to Mexico, some parts of the production process to Mexico. So they were able to lower their costs to compete with Japanese engines, which were lower cost. Uh, they got access to a whole market in Mexico that they had not had access to. And in fact, Cummins uh, became in the 1990s the biggest uh, truck engine supplier for all of Mexico. So they have a New York-based plant that grew and expanded because they were supplying all of these engines to the Mexican market. Um, so they had more access there. And so, and they also, because they had bigger economies of scale, they were getting more orders. Um, because they were across these three countries, then they became more globally competitive um, because they had higher quality, um, but were able to meet the Japanese and Europeans on price. And that really, I think, is a story, uh, the positive story of NAFTA is Cummins survived and today is still one of the biggest providers because they were able to do that. You know, I recently interviewed um, Ali Wine about his new book, and I think you share similar ideas and optimism about the future and that the United States can reinvent itself and do the kind of things that the Cummins engines did. But, you know, I wonder about Europe. Europe seems to be in trouble. Um, they're one of your hubs. But the kind of regionalism you're describing, is it working there, um, especially in the face of all the pressures that have come as a result of the war in Ukraine? It seems that France and Germany aren't getting along as well as you would think, that they're every man's for himself sort of uh, feeling has... has uh, has come back into play and that other nations like Greece haven't benefited as much as Germany, which is an export-driven economy. So, and Italy seems to be in, in huge financial trouble, possibly political trouble as well. Do you think that, do you think that, that Europe will hold together, that this grand experiment um, will persist? I mean, the European... Union and experiment has always had its challenges. Um, and we have seen this, you know, I write about in the 1960s, Charles de Gaulle didn't want to let in the British or anybody else at one point. And then in the 70s, they had challenges with their currencies. Uh, in the 80s, there were differences. Uh, and they, but they doubled down on a single market and they doubled down on getting rid of barriers. Um, the 90s to the challenges, they turned to one currency. Um, 
they definitely continue to face challenges and, and especially the shock of the war, the energy shock that they're facing today. And they're like, I won't discount this. Um, but what we have seen, I would say, is a unity in Europe, especially after Brexit, when, when the British decided to leave, the, the support for the union within the European Union actually rose very high. And some of the, the rightist parties in places like Italy or, or other countries um, stopped talking about leaving after they saw what happened to, to Britain. So, And I think the, the economic consequences of leaving for Britain are pretty apparent to any country that might think about exiting. So in some ways, uh, you lost one member, but you, but you, it proved the thesis that it is, it is a benefit to be part of the club rather than to be outside of the club. So I think that helps. The other thing is while you do see challenges over, you know, access to energy and prices and, and, and populism and the like, you also see the European Union moving forward on whole sets of regulations and standards and green transition legislation and other sorts of things that if it continues, which so far it is continuing, will bind those countries together even more than they are in the past. So I guess I would say many people for 60, 70 years have, have uh, you know, foretold the, the death of the first the European community and now the European Union. Um, but And the euro. <laughs> and the euro. Um, mm -hmm. But it has given them something that, um, that has allowed them to compete vis-a-vis -vis Asia and vis-a-vis -vis, uh, North America. The headwinds right now in terms of energy, in terms of demographics, in terms of other things are quite significant. Um, but I think there are strengths in the European Union that shouldn't be discounted. Well, uh, based upon your expertise in Latin America, uh, I cannot help but ask you about what's going on in Brazil as well, the biggest country in Latin America. And I recently have seen on social media uh, a lot of demonstrations of supporters, you know, anti-Lula support. Do you think that this has, this kind of uh, fracture potentially has any legs? Where do you see the Brazilian economy? going? Why aren't they going further? Or am I not, am I missing something? So Brazil, I would say Brazil just had an election and the sitting president, Jair Bolsonaro, who is a conservative rightist president, populist president, uh, lost his bid for re-election. It's the first president in Brazil to ever to lose a bid for re-election. And uh, his challenger and, and victor is uh, Lula, who's a former president. He was a president in the early 2000s, um, who is coming back and from the leftist side, from the Workers' Party. Uh, I would say Brazil, uh, in many ways, dodged a bullet there um, in terms of the support for its democracy. Uh, you, can, you can like or not like the policies of, of Lula, but he is a Democrat, small d. He believes in democracy and in the workings of government. And it was not always clear that the sitting president, Bolsonaro, did. In fact, he, throughout uh, the election and the campaign, talked about the election being rigged. It talked about, you know, lots of things that we hear in the United States here about not believing of uh, the validity of the institution. So I think what we have seen is a reaffirmation of Brazil's institutions and its political checks and balances, which in the long run for the economy is a very good thing, I would say. It means stability for investors. It means it means uh, making sure that not one side or the other, you know, guides policy or that you see repression and, and the like. So I think that's a good thing. The other thing in the shorter term, I would say, is Lula coming back? Uh, Bolsonaro had really made Brazil a pariah um, in the international investment community for people who care about ESG, for people who care about deforestation and the like, because he had pushed very hard to um, end some of the environmentally friendly policies uh, and climate change policies of the previous government. 
Um, so you've already seen countries like Germany and Norway saying that they would come back and invest in Brazil, that they'll come bring back an Amazon fund. Um, I do also think there were many companies who stopped sourcing from Brazil, companies like H&M, which makes clothes. They wouldn't buy leather from Brazil or supermarket chains like Sainsbury wouldn't buy beef because they were worried about it being tied to illegal deforestation. I expect those companies to come back. So I do think in the short run, you will see a boost in international trade, uh, potentially in investment. Um, and particularly if, you know, right now we're in the middle of the, the latest COP, COP27, which is happening in Egypt. If there is money for a green transition, whether private sector investments or tied to public sector investments, Brazil, I think, could be a candidate uh, and a beneficiary of that in ways that it probably wouldn't have been if you'd had a different president come in, if you had Bolsonaro stay around. Uh, so I think there are some benefits there. You know, that said, uh, Brazil is a country that's one of the most closed economies in the world in terms of its trade with the rest of the world. It's a big economy. It's a big country. So they're fairly internally focused. Um, and they have not participated in the global economy in the ways that we've been talking about. They right. don't have manufacturing supply chains. And in fact, earlier today, I was looking at some economic data over since the 1980s, and their manufacturing sector as part of their economy has shrunk significantly over these last 30 years rather than grown. They're one of these countries that's deindustrializing, uh, And I would say part of that is because they do not have ties with their neighbors where they have the benefits of economies of scale and, and ties to allow them to participate in a way in the global economy that would really bring prosperity to Brazil. So that is Brazil's challenge is how do you bring that back? How do you create the kinds of supply chains that you saw form in Asia and bring a lot of wealth there? Do you think that South America could create its own regional hub? Is that a possibility or is it I, I out of the question? <laughs> I mean, they haven't done it yet. And, and you and I could talk here about the political reasons and right. you know, the logistical reasons and the lack of infrastructure. There's lots there's lots running against them. They, they don't mm -hmm. have some of the tools or the physical infrastructure to do so. But that said, I think right now there's an opportunity for the dozens of countries that didn't participate in the globalization wave of the last 40 years. So those who were left on the ends of the supply chains, as things move out of China, as things move around the world, there's an opening for other countries mm -hmm. to fit in there. And, and I think South America is a place where they could take advantage of it. Uh, one of the benefits they have, and we were talking about the green economy and, and the green transition and the kinds of commodities that you need, South America has a bounty of many of them. Um, so there's a place there for them to start. Um, but I say where I would start for those economies is don't just mine those, those uh, you know, the lithium and the cobalt and the copper and things, process them, move yourself up the value chain and work with your neighbors so that you bring a size and a heft that the rest of the world uh, engages with you um, on that higher level and that more value added level. I think that's the way to bring um, new economic dynamism and different kinds of jobs and careers. And it, it's just this failure to develop in the way that you're talking about that has led to immigration issues between North and South America as well. How does immigration, what role does it play in regionalism? In Europe, one thing about the European Union is it allowed the free flow of labor. That's, of course, not true in Japan or China or, or most of Asia, but it's definitely true there. And here we have those flows, but they're not sanctioned. Well, how do you see that, that playing into regionalism? So immigration or the movement of or worker visas and the like have been vital in spreading these supply chains and particularly the managerial know-how, the technological know-how. I mean, that's a big part of that. Yes, patents matter and, and those sorts of things matter in high-tech industries, but it's also the people who know how to do that. And, and 
governments are very cognizant of this. In fact, the United States just recently, when they put export controls on semiconductors, it wasn't just the equipment for the semiconductors. It was any U.S. citizen who works in this industry wasn't allowed to go and work for these companies. Right. But it's about mm-hmm. the human capital. So mm-hmm. there's different parts of migration. You need the high-end migration. You need the movement of people along the supply chains because a lot of the knowledge is where the value added is. That's what really makes makes it work. So that's one side. You know, the other side is, and, and here as I look forward, of all the three big regional hubs, uh, the one that has the best demographic profile, i.e. has a labor market that's growing rather than shrinking, is North America. Mm -hmm. Uh, Many countries in Asia have big challenges, starting with China. And today, you know, the workforce in China, more people are coming out of the workforce than going into the workforce now. Uh, Europe, too, has has many uh, demographic challenges as it looks forward. Um, But partly the U.S. and North America's uh, benefit there has been immigration in the past. And so I would hate to see us uh, continue this policy of closing the doors um, to various workers, uh, rather than thinking about how we how we have a bigger economy. And part of a bigger economy means having a bigger labor force. Um, so this is it is a big challenge. We're going to see more migration, I think, all over the world for lots of reasons. For you know, government challenge reasons, for climate change reasons, people are going to be on the move. And I think the real challenge globally, but particularly for the United States, is how do we harness this um, for to make lives better for those people, but also for the labor needs that we have if we envision um, this much more robust and dynamic economy? Okay. Well, lastly, in a world dominated by the U.S. dollar and U.S. monetary policy, how can other regions escape um, financial globalization? Uh, it seems that that overrides everything. And how do countries escape that and For example, is crypto or some alternate payment or settlement systems, is the domination of the dollar um, something that really prevents these under-industrialized countries from developing? And also in a world where we have sanctions and so forth, if we disagree with these other regions, the dollar is a trump card, isn't it? It, it really is. And I know, I mean, for years, for decades, there's been efforts to create alternatives to the dollar, talk about alternatives, but I really have yet to to see them see them thrive. And um, just, you know, this week you look at what's been happening to crypto and, and the decline of, of of one of the main, you know, exchanges. And, and so I, I, I'm skeptical that that is a, a near or even medium term uh, replacement. I do think, though, even with the dollar's dominance and even with this, you know, currency that that is underneath commodities and all kinds of other exchanges, we do see often concentrations of investment. So the difference between what's the currency and where is the investment going? So when you look at foreign direct investment or you look at bank loans, you look at these other kinds of investments, they do tend to stay more regional. And since 2008, 2009, with the financial crisis, They've gotten even more regional than they were in the past. Many of the big global banks have have shrunk their footprints and are no longer, you know, have aspirations to be everywhere in the world. They're much more regional. So, so yes, while the dollar may end up being a global uh, floor in terms of 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 how we interact and and you know these various the SWIFT and these other kinds of things that connect economies and and, and then allow the United States a, a privilege of 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 power there. Um, I do think in terms of the sort of commercial loans and and investments, the kinds of things that companies depend on, that will continue to be very regionally focused. I think I I worry more really about, for example, uh, policy mistakes that that we make here and the effect that they will have 
on countries who have dollar-denominated debt that's now more expensive. And so there, because of COVID, a lot of these countries, their debt has increased significantly. So how are they going to get additional capital, you know, under these circumstances? I don't think it's a good thing. I think uh, that there's huge, contagion. Yeah. Yeah. No, it is a huge challenge. And, and those are, and, and I would say the fact that the world has so much regionalization doesn't mean it doesn't have any globalization, right? right. It, it's just flipping <laughs> on there. Usually we think about everything is global or, or that there's this image that everything's global. And, and what I lay out in the book and the analysis I do is that more often than not, it's regional, but that doesn't that mean that some things aren't global. And exactly as you say, the dollar is something that does allow people to reach the other side of the world um, just with a digital transaction. I think what our, our conversation shows, is it's a very complex picture. It's not as simple as one label that the world is a complex place. Uh, Shannon, thank you so much for joining me today. And I urge our readers to read The Globalization Myth, Why Regions Matter. And also, where can our our uh, listeners follow you on Twitter. What is your Twitter You can follow me address? on Twitter. It's Shannon K. O'Neill, O-N-E-I-L in the last name. Um, and as long as Twitter is standing and is open, I will, st- <laughs> I will be there. <laughs> okay. And also they can uh, go to the CFR website too to find exactly. recent. Exactly. You can follow yeah. me there um, and send me an email. I have, a, I have a newsletter. If anybody wants to sign up for it, send me an email and I'll put you on. Wonderful. Thank you so much. And thank you to the people behind the scenes here at EconView who make our podcast possible, managing editor Ying Zan and our producer Sam Fu. To receive notices of our upcoming podcasts, visit our website, econview.com, and also sign up for our newsletter. Thank you, Shannon. Thanks so much.